Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the second class of our structured study of jhana meditation. This is on the Satipatthana Sutta, which is one of the most significant suttas the Buddha ever taught, as this is the, the, um, the teaching where the Buddha establishes what he calls the right method, meaning the right method of meditation. Uh, and why did he classify it that way? It's because just like today, there were uh, nearly an endless... Um, list of medita- or so-called meditation practices. A lot of them have nothing to do with meditation, such as candle gazing or visualization. Um, but none of them that I've ever come across are designed specifically to develop concentration in specific, specifically in this way, meaning only using the breath and following these very clear but um, significant instructions. And so last week, well, the, during the introduction, I described the four levels of jhana. So these are the, the uh, levels of jhana to recognize for the sole purpose of reinforcing our practice so that we know we're using the right method and we know that by the results that are uh, become uh, apparent rather quickly. Um, and so the Buddha taught no other meditation method than this and he taught it within the framework of the Eightfold Path. In other words, the Buddha didn't teach just meditation. He taught meditation for a tool, and how that tool can be used to prepare our minds for holding in mind, that's called refined mindfulness, the other seven factors. In other words, in order to hold in mind anything, in order to have that quality of mind called mindfulness, we have to have some measure of concentration. And so this is a very applied application of concentration, that develops a very focused level of mindfulness. And the rest of the sutta, the beginning of the sutta, is where the Buddha teaches the right method to use. And the rest of the sutta is an example of how to apply it in different significant themes in our life. Um, Every school of Buddhism that I ever came across that mentions sati, sati means um, mindfulness, um, or talks about the four foundations of mindfulness, use this entire sutta um, with mystical teachings applied to it as the entire sutta is a a teaching in how to meditate, meaning there's a meditation method on the five clinging aggregates or the the four noble truths or the seven factors of awakening or the hindrances, etc., etc. Where again, if you read the, the sutta carefully, it's very clear that the Buddha is saying, develop your meditation method, include it within the framework of the Eightfold Path, and then look at these things that are common issues to human beings and they're uh, either hindrances to developing awakening or to recognize these supportive pieces that we put together. How's that for an introduction? Okay. The Satipatthana Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Kama Sadama where he addressed those assembled. Friends, there are four frames of reference, four foundations of mindfulness that are required for the purification of all beings. 
for the overcoming of sorrow and regret for the disappearance of pain and distress, for establishing the right method of practice, and for complete unbinding. What are these for? Excuse me. So there's quite a bit in that little introduction, but all of those are recognized and abandoned or recognized and developed in using the right method. The first foundation of mindfulness, and by the way, we did all of this just a few minutes ago. Be mindful of the breath in the body, determined and alert, and abandoning craving and aversion to what is occurring. So we directly abandon craving and aversion to what is occurring through recognizing that we're caught up in a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling, an emotion, and simply coming back to the breath. And we're doing just what the Buddha taught right here. And why are we doing this? Why is this? Why is this first in meditation, the first step, if you will, rather than bowing a hundred times, chanting the Buddha's name, visualizing, staring at a candle, excuse me, or anything else that modern Buddhists are so enamored with, rather than just doing the simple meditation method for a simple reason for deepening concentration. And many people wonder why they've been meditating for many, many years and not really getting anywhere. It might be the method. It might have nothing to do with you. The reason why I'm saying that is I blame myself for many, many years that I just can't get this or I just need uh, endless eons of practice as a lot of Buddhism is taught today or I just wasn't good enough, which caused me to bounce from one practice to another, to another, to another, always finding the method that would fit me or at least taking a bit of this method and applying it to the method I learned yesterday and again, I'll do the same thing tomorrow, cobbling together all these different pieces, insisting that this is what I'm supposed to be doing, calling it Buddhism, when none of it is. In fact, in that, at that point, none of it has anything to do with what the Buddha actually taught, which is to awaken, not dabble in, in um, modern pop applications of mindfulness and meditation. The second application of, uh, the second foundation of mindfulness is to be mindful of feelings arising from the sixth sense base determined and alert and abandoning craving and aversion to what is occur occurring. We'll get into the sixth sense base a little bit uh, later in this study, um, but it simply means that we become mindful of our breath in the body and a feeling arises. Most people in meditation think that meditation is for getting into a feeling. In fact, it's often taught that way. Whatever arises, get into it, feel it, analyze it, where did it come from, what are you doing with it, how does it relate to something magical or mystical, and get Avalokiteshvara to come in and take a look at it as well, and maybe all the endless Buddhas in the past and the future should sniff on it a bit, and then take another breath, and a thought comes around. Do the same thing, call in, how can you get anywhere with that type of practice? But that is what, that's what I did for many years, and I thought... As I'm sitting there with my mind feverishly going through everything that I ever thought of or felt, that this is meditation and somehow it's going to bring me some kind of understanding. When really all that I was doing was sitting for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, or in some cases, 14 hours a day, rehashing the events of my life and how disappointed I am with it in myself. And we wonder, or I wondered, why I can't get anywhere. Because all that I'm doing is reinforcing the common human problem of self-loathing. And this is why... 
just to use the word, the wrong practice can and not in, in an insignificant not in an insignificant amount of occurrences, occurrences lead to rather severe mental issues because what are you doing? You're simply going over and over again now in a formalized way about what doesn't work in your life and why you don't work at all. And again, what do you end up with? And that's not to say that everyone that engages in the wrong meditation method will end up a psychopath. They won't. And many people develop a, a, a measure of benefit doing anything like this, anything that might be called mindfulness or a modern mindfulness application. And why is that? Because it's, it, it, because at that point, it's distracting you away from the more egregious parts of your behavior. And that's a good thing, up to a point. But at some point, you may want to awaken, meaning gain full human maturity, and that's when you can begin this practice. Being mindful of thoughts arising from the same base, the sixth sense base, determined and alert, and abandoning craving and aversion to what is occurring. Take a breath. The fourth quality, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, is being mindful of the present quality of mind, determined and alert, while abandoning craving and aversion to what is occurring. So that fourth foundation of mindfulness uh, relates to the instruction I give at the end of meditation, be at peace with your mind. It's your mind. I might vary that uh, at times. But it simply means whatever quality of mind I have in this moment, to recognize it's my mind. I'm responsible for it. I created it. And I can have it be any way that I wish once I gain full human maturity. And if my mind keeps reacting in ways that I find uh, disappointing at best, I know that I'm going in, in the right direction now. And so now I can, I can dispassionately say that thought or that feeling that was so distracting, this thought is not me. This feeling is not me. It's arising from my sixth sense base because that sixth sense base that is now informing me of what's occurring is rooted in ignorance of what's occurring. So how can it inform me? The only thing that I can use, right? This is how, we're, this is how we are human beings. We don't have any supernatural powers to figure it out. We have to use what we have. And if we're going to use what we have, which none of us knew we could do up until now, most of us, we have to have the right method to do it, don't we? And the right method, the right meditation method, unites a mind in its body where the sixth sense base is informing itself and now apply reasonableness and understanding rather than fabrications and reactions. It's all occurring within the same mind, but now I'm developing a foundation to view life. In fact, I'm, I'm developing four foundations that when that will, when looked at clearly, address every single aspect of human life. It can all be addressed from these four foundations of mindfulness because everything that occurs, occurs within a body that's breathing first, it has to be breathing or there's nothing occurring. That, that human being that is now breathing and animating its body through that breath has feelings. Or things occur, it creates a feeling. Or things occur and it creates a thought. Or things occur and it, and it creates a thought attached to a feeling. That is the gamut of our experience that is recognized or that we become acquainted with in the fourth foundation. 
whatever I hold in mind will always lead to or, or develop the present quality of mind. Whatever I hold in mind will always develop the present quality of mind. Whatever I hold in mind will determine the quality of my existence. Whatever I hold in mind determines my existence. Whatever I hold in mind. And then the most important thing we can realize is that whatever I hold in mind has nothing to do with me. It's just a reference point to what's occurring. And in that way, if whatever is occurring, it is appropriate for me to feel deep sadness, I will, and I won't want it to be any difference, different. And if in this moment it's something that is, that is so inspiring that I'm filled with the bliss of having a human life, that's appropriate as well. But none of it is me and none of it is mine. The fourth foundation of mindfulness, be mindful of the present quality of mind. Whatever it is, whether it's sad, blissful, angry. Anger is it's something that came up on retreat that someone asked me. So, kind of like this. Boy, I can't remember who it was. So, I think it was, so the Buddha never got angry yet. Or yes, or A, or something like that. And I said, of course he did. Of course he did. He was a human being. But of course it looked completely different to the outside world. To the outside world, it just looked like an elevated level of determination in the Buddha, which comes through in many, many suttas. Where the sutta where he had man, um, admonishes Ananda for taking dependent origination too lightly. Some people have said, wasn't he angry there? He was. But he wasn't acting out in the common human way of angry. He, angry, he wasn't taking it personal. He didn't have to, have to diminish the person in front of him just because he's angry. He didn't have to insist just because he recognizes something that is important and he's, he's gathering all his inner forces, all his inner poise to make the point. It simply doesn't look like our anger because it's not how we express anger in a determined way, in a very mindful and present way. Listen to me, as the Buddha says in many suttas. Listen to me, this is important. Couldn't you say that that's it? Wouldn't you say that that would be anger that you have, except you're applying it in a impatient or inappropriate way? Listen to me, God damn it! Or listen to me, this is important. It's the same feeling inside. But now from a, a human being who is mature enough to understand it, to understand the value of being present for this moment, understanding the significance. And in Siddhartha Gautama's mind, the most significant thing that could ever arise in this moment, the most significant thing, is to correct, to correct somebody and bring them back to the Dhamma. So of course he had strong feelings about it, as I do, as we all do. I was taught John, But we don't lose our minds over it. Yes, I, David. I always thought... <clears throat> Not so much anger, but an absolute urgency mm -hmm. to teach and correct. Yes, that's the right word. No, I did, David said he, he thinks of it more as absolute urgency, and and that is that's the word that that should that we should be using to describe all aspects of anger, isn't it? Because when I'm angry, I it is urgent to me that you listen to me, or that you change, or the world change, or I change. Instead of the urgency of the moment. Don't lose this moment. It's important. And if you're feeling anger, notice it. Feel it. Understand it. 
because it's trying to tell you something important or you wouldn't be so damn angry. But don't act on it and don't take it personal. And if we can do it with anger, we can do it with everything. And we will do it with anger. And we will do it with the entire gamut of human emotions if we are to awaken. But we don't lose anything. We don't lose the motivation to be fully mindful in this present moment. In fact, that is then what motivates us and animates us moment by moment throughout our life. Excuse me. John? Mm-hmm. Mm. Please, Jen. I'm just... So, I feel like, and I, I don't want to get off track, but I sort of feel like, you, you know, you always talk about how emotion is a thought attached to a feeling. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the teachings, you know, the sensations are either pleasure, feel, sensations of pleasure, yep. pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, yep. or like neutral feelings. Yes. So really to be kind of zooming out on it, or zooming in on it a little, um, you know, defining emotions like anger, it's not really one feeling. It's it's kind right. of a clump of yep. lots of feelings and maybe some thoughts and some little fabrication in there, mm-hmm. perception. So whether or not the Buddha experiences anger is... I'm not trying to argue at all. No, 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 you're not. But but it's, you know, the question really is, does the Buddha experience sensations arising and passing away? Yeah, Yeah. and absolutely that is going to be happening. Yes. Because he's alive. Right. He has to. to, but. But how, really, like, ask yourself the question, like, what is it that you're looking for? Are you looking for the Buddha to be like, you know, grabbing a, you know, a, a bat or yeah. doing medicine ball slams after they listen to the news like I do, <laughs> you know, um, or, you know, or are you just looking for, you know, just wondering what that experience is like? Well, the experience is just staying present with what's arising and passing away. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Why do you got to argue with me all the time? I know. <laughs> I know Jen has this way. And she, I, I'm kidding. Discernment. Um, of, of really, we can now call it giving each other the needle because I brought it up on retreat. Well, of really fine-tuning and bringing up this important point. So what is it that we're doing when we're, when we're reacting in an urgent way or what might have felt like in the past? Anger. anger right. In the, in the Dhamma, the Buddha teaches us that when we let go of the sensual, sensual experience of anger, and by the way, it's why we like it so much, mm. because it feel, we're feeling fully alive, the Buddha then teaches we become sensitive to what's arising. Mm-hmm. It's a big difference, isn't it, between a, a sensitivity to what's occurring to me mm-hmm. than sensually indulging to what's occurring with me. Yeah. Yeah. It's so two it's different things. And that's, the, that's the, the nuanced difference that mm-hmm. then Jen was pointing to. So again, we don't have to look at a strong feeling and say, well, maybe this is the anger that that guy's right, talking about. Right, it's not right. that. But don't be afraid of your feelings. Yes. And don't anticipate yes. that you won't feel when you do this. Mm-hmm. You will. In fact, you'll feel things that might have been characterized as anger, as just an urgent 
that there's something urgent in this moment to be mindful of. There you go. Mm-hmm. Feeling something doesn't mean you're off the path. Yes, and this is Stay why we have classes this way. So we can, yeah. so these, these things that I'm saying that might be unclear are brought out and nuanced through our own experience, yeah. not through five different theories now. You know, you just heard, or three different experiences of just what I'm talking about. And there's, there's another thing. And here's another one. Yeah, and there's another one. <laughs> there, and there's a whole other thing. Um, is how those feelings are then expressed. Or yeah. if they are right. expressed Which at all. Which yeah. yeah. And a lot of them won't be because you, you won't have any need to. Yeah. It's just, it's a feeling arising and passing away. It was pleasant. It has nothing to do with the world or that person. So we keep it to ourselves. And again, think about how much calmer your life will be if you don't have the compulsive, addictive need to tell everybody how you're feeling all the time or what's on your mind. You might even stop going to your phone every six minutes with your thought that you have to tweet out to the world. We might have a different president if one person could have learned that. Again, I'm not making a point. But it it does make a good point of what an example that is of, of... a collective loss of mind, this urgent need to let people know everything that's going on with me, what I eat for breakfast, what my cat is doing, right? I mean, why can't we keep something to ourselves? And if you're not, begin with one thing. Cut one tweet a day or one, whatever those things that people do. Just, <clears throat> stop it, you know? It's just that simple. It's, it's, it's an aspect of mindlessness. So then the Buddha doesn't say, just be mindful of the breath and the body or the rest of these things. He teaches us how to do it. And how does one remain mindful of the breath and the body in and of itself, just the breath, without attaching anything to it or any quality to it, such as um, what is taught in many circles as um, uh, an affected type of breathing, meaning... What, let's do a meditation on breathing in only long breaths and see what that's like, or only short breaths, or exaggerated breaths that grew into the soul. Or the, that was that was my uh, rebirthing. Uh, everyone had one way back. Mine was called soul breath, and it was it was it was at the time the most technical technologically advanced form of breathing that was ever established. <laughs> the only reason I stopped doing it is that I realized I'm not teaching anything that anybody else can't do without coming here and wasting their 30 bucks, so I stopped doing it. Yeah. Probably wasn't more, but that was uh, probably 1985 or so, so whatever, 30 bucks went a long way. But so did our breath. <laughs> and it, it, I, it was amazing. I did this in a collaboration with uh, a woman who I was living with at the time. And there was nothing to this. It was, it was all suggestion, but it was remarkable what we could suggest people in. And, and really, that's, why I, that's really why I stopped. It wasn't because it was, I realized how silly it was. I realized that we were hurting people. We were, we were forcing people to feel things they weren't, that wasn't real. It was all suggestion. It was really intense. And it, it really was, it was, um, it, it wasn't wrong up until that point. In a, in a strictly moral sense, because I really thought I was doing some good. But if I kept doing it, it really would have been all kinds of wrongness about it, wouldn't it? And, uh, and so I stopped. You know. um, and how does one remain mindful of the breath in the body in and of itself, just the breath? Finding a secluded spot, the shade of a tree or an empty hut will do, anything secluded, uh, 
sitting erect with legs crossed in the front. That's not an absolute. That's just how the Buddha taught it. And it was just a common way of sitting at the time. There's nothing magical or mystical or even that would improve your meditation practice except just these basic instructions. And if you're more comfortable sitting in a chair, sit in a chair. If you, if you don't like to cross, I used to, it was the most comfortable <laughs> way for me to sit for years was to sit cross-legged. Now I sit with my, I got to sit with, with side of the way. My right leg, I, I use it sticking out in front of me, which is now the new right method. So will everybody please stick their right leg? <laughs> it's how I'm comfortable, yes. Laura's the only one that's got this. <laughs> we should be comfortable, but we should be sitting in a posture that doesn't uh, incline us to falling asleep. That's all. Remaining mindful of the breath, breathe in and breathe out. And there's also the thing of like, you should absolutely not move once you start meditating. Oh, thank you. There's, there's another thing that I've, I've you know, gone through a lot of pain. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because I thought, oh, if I if I only move that, that blows the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was I, that I was I mean I the if you're doing a seven or ten day sashin, it's likely through uh, some some Zen school, and that posture is the most important thing in most Zen schools that I was in. So much so that they would hit you with a stick if you weren't sitting right or slumping over. But they they usually ask for it. I'm not they're not vicious, but. You know, I got hit plenty of times because I was moving just a little bit. You know, this way. It's rigid, and it's one of the reasons why it's so painful. And if you move, you're doing it wrong. And again, can you imagine uh, someone as compassionate as Siddhartha doing something like that? Mm-hmm. And thinking that that in some way might be encouraging you? Telling you that simply the way you're sitting is wrong? Of course he wouldn't. He might tell you if you keep falling asleep to not meditate while you're laying down. He might, he might say something like this. Have you tried <laughs> sitting up when you meditate? Not, you know, again, the, the framework of the Eightfold Path is paramount. We can't change it in any way, but we do fit it into our lives, including fitting the method into maybe I don't have to sit perfectly erect or I don't have to have my legs crossed. That, this is what we're talking about. Remaining mindful of the breath Breathe in and breathe out. Mindful of the breath, long or short, breathe in and breathe out. Training yourself to be sensitive to the breath and calming any bodily fabrication. Just sensitive to the breath. Just, again, be aware that you're breathing. And as you breathe, you are naturally calming any bodily fabrication. What do we tell people when they're really tense? Take a breath. Why? Because it usually works. Unless you're me and you're so arrogant that if anybody ever told me to take a breath, it's not going to be fun. What do you mean, take a breath? I'm breathing. Don't you try to calm me down. (laughs) Remaining mindful of the breath in the body, mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath, the arising and the passing away of phenomena. This is both, the breath is metaphor and the practical experience of the arising and passing away of all phenomena. And there's not one thing you can point to in the world that is permanent. Except ignorance, but I guess that will yield some at some point too. But again, there is, there's nothing. It, the, 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 all the universes that we can't even know, the most brilliant minds say, yeah, just a blink in an eye. They're here and they're gone. The breath is metaphor for our whole, our entire life, isn't it? We breathe in, we breathe out. We arise in the world, 
and we leave the world in just the same way. And if we're if we have developed a Dhamma, it is just in that gentle way that we experience our life. In the gentleness of our breath. Because that's all of life, isn't it? It's all of life. You can say that one breath, one complete breath, encompasses an entire human life, because it is just that. The arising and the passing away. And so if it's just that, What's the most important thing to do while doing that? Is it getting a lot of stuff that weighs that down? So much so that I have trouble breathing? That my breath is short? I catch it all the time? I might lose this. I might lose that. She might not love me anymore. Or she might not love me anymore. And that might—that thought might bring me to tears. And there'll be tears of, there'll be appropriate tears. There'll be tears of loss. Human beings, guess what? They feel loss even when there's no eye making. Why? Because they recognize the change. When my dad died at 101, I wasn't happy. I was actually glad that he was, his quality of life had diminished, that that was over. But I was, I was more profoundly sad than I was when my mom died about, I can't remember now, 12 or 14 years earlier. But that was rooted in understanding. What else should I feel when this wonderful man passed? And it still brings me to tears. You can probably hear it in my voice. And it's not because I'm clinging to anything. It's out of deep appreciation for this man's life. And we should feel the appropriate level of sadness. That's what it means. We recognize loss, but we don't get lost in the loss. This is how we should feel. This is how we should feel. We should, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. And we certainly shouldn't eye make over it. You don't need to know about my sadness. I don't need to drag it around with me for years. Because if I do, I will become mentally ill to some level or not, or another. Some may not notice it. There was a family member who, my dad was just great. He really was. And he had his own, he was a human being. He had, he had flaws. And for some reason, my, one of my family members got it into her. Hell, there it goes. There's only two of them. They're both gone now anyway, so I'm not talking about. She got it into her head that, that our father, there were six of us, was really not a good person. And all, and, and all it was that he disciplined her maybe a little bit more than most uh, because she was the, the first. Now, my three brothers know what I'm talking about. <laughs> they shoot them. Um, and she never got over that till the day she died. She had normal relationships with my father, but he could always feel it in her. And again, there was no reason for it, except she had decided that her father wasn't perfect. And it really was unfortunate because she, 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 she lived and died without the opportunity to really know this wonderful man. And if she could just get past this, this resentment that I don't think she knew where it, came, where it came from, she could have. And there were plenty of times that I was angry with this guy. So much so that when I was 15 years old, he was trying to discipline me and I grabbed a, a knife off the, off the counter. That's where I was standing. And I actually had the thought of killing this man. 
or at least sticking his knife in him because of how angry he was. Contrast that to almost 80 years later where all that I had left was love for this man. Why? Because for one thing, I didn't do it and I didn't have to defend it for the rest of my life because when I came to my senses, meaning when I stopped drinking and drugging, I apologized for all of that. And maybe the reason why my sister didn't get past it is because she never had a vehicle introduced in her life to actually do that. I did. I was told if you didn't do this, you're going to drink or drug again. So I did it. All just making the point that whatever we hold on to is going to deeply color our lives or destroy our lives. Do we want that? Or do we want to develop the concentration necessary in the framework of the Eightfold Path to recognize it and abandon it? In this way, one remains mindful internally and externally with regard to the body. Internally and externally, what does it mean? It simply means I I, I cease casting myself out there. I keep seeing myself in the world or the need to establish myself externally. How would I do it? In your minds. This is how you should see me. In all the ways that I live my life, this is how you should see me. And this is why we react to strong feelings because we think people aren't seeing me or may see me, see me in a way that I don't want them to. Instead of, this is just me. Or, <laughs> this is not me, this is not mine. This is just what I am. Internally and externally, in any external, uh, non-physical self-establishment that I seek to do, meaning in the next life I'll get a reward, even in the next moment, I'll get a reward. But anything like that is an external, non-physical establishment. Stop it. With no self-reference, calmly noting there is a body remaining independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. So this body is my body, but the world is also a body. And all of you are bodies. When When the Buddha talks about bodies among bodies, he's talking about this body, the world, all the bodies out there, and all the bodies that I've created for myself, which is a lot. Concentration is a foundation that supports refined mindfulness. Being mindful of what is occurring in relation to the Eightfold Path is refined mindfulness. Being mindful of the breath in the body is the foundation of developing understanding. These are my words, by the way. I'm sorry I didn't say that uh, two sentences ago of an ego personality in its relation to the distraction of stress. So the Buddha could have almost as accurately said there is distraction as saying the first noble truth is there is dukkha. Because it is the preoccupation with dukkha that we lose this moment and so lose our concentration in and literally lose our minds to it. Being mindful of the breath in the body interrupts this outer focus clinging, condition, clinging conditioned thinking and begins to quiet the mind with directed inner mindfulness. And the, the second the level, first level is not, directed thought and evaluation are present. That's what this is referring to. I'm simply directing my thought back to my breath, away from a thought and away from a feeling. Being mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath brings mindfulness to the arising and passing away of all phenomena. Notice that there is not, no specialness, nothing special, or applied emphasis attached to the normal breathing cycle. However you find yourself breathing, that's it. That's how you're breathing. 
When walking, be mindful of walking. When standing, be mindful of standing. When sitting, be mindful of sitting. When lying down, be mindful of lying down. But don't make a practice out of any one of those. In any function, be mindful that there is a body. When going about, looking this way and that, now these are my words, I'm sorry, be fully mindful. When breathing or or reacting, be fully mindful. When carrying a bowl or a cloak, be fully mindful. When eating, drinking, or savoring food, be fully mindful. When eliminating waste, be fully mindful. When walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, walking, talking, or silent, be fully mindful. In this way, one remains mindful of the breath in the body, the in-breath and the, and the out-breath. During all of our life, lifely occurrences and everything we could possibly do, be mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath. Be mindful, I'm in my body. Notice that you're here, you're not there. In this way, one remains mindful of the breath in the body, the arising and the passing away of the body, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. Then the Buddha gives us this metaphor. Just as a person with good eyesight Emptying a bag full of mixed, gra- mixed grains would know this is wheat, this is rice, these are beans, these are sesame seeds, because he can see them. It's, it's obvious. You had developed a reference point or somebody taught you what that reference point was prior. In the same way, one remains mindful from the soles of the feet to the top of the head. Encased in skin, there is hair, nails, teeth, tendon, bones, marrow, organ, feces, phlegm, blood, urine, sweat, fears... Uh, <laughs> Fat, tears, saliva, mucus, and fluid in the joints. Everybody's got them. Don't take none of it personally. In this way, one remains mindful of the four elements manifesting in all these different ways within the body and without. The earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element. So again, what our body is made up of is as common as everything we're looking at. Carl Sagan used to like to say it's all star stuff. We are. The stars are all star stuff, so are we. Does that make us stars? No, it makes us human beings. We're all carbon-based entities. All of us. And this carbon-based entity happened, this, all human carbon-based entities are all animated by something that is collectively called a mind that each person holds individually. We can do with it what we want. If we had a collective mind that everybody is so enamored with cosmic mind, one mind unity, none of us would be doing any of this. We just, we wouldn't be, there'd be no self-awareness, would there? There'd be nothing to awaken because there'd be nothing to awaken to. Why would, if there was only one mind present, why would that mind have to change at all? It, it simply doesn't make any sense, even though we're so enamored with it. Why is it, why is it so pleasing to people. Why do people grasp after the idea of universal consciousness? And we've been doing it forever. Because then I don't have to do anything. Really. I just have to recognize, yeah, I'm part of this. If I'm concerned about my behavior and the collective says you should be, well, then I'll start blaming myself because I'm part of this thing and I'm tearing it down because of how bad I am. Well, you are and you aren't. That's the wrong way to look at it. That's a wrong view. Because you can't change it. It's a right view that you're hurting the collective, but seeing yourself as part of the collective in that way is what's stopping you from recognizing your individual behavior or excusing it away. 
And we do that within sanghas. Engaged Buddhism is very, you know, it, it should be famous. In my mind, it's infamous for creating identities that then go out and create a lot of chaos in the world thinking that it's Buddhist practice. There's mass genocide going on in Burma right now by Buddhists. Or at least people think they are. They think they're right. Who are they killing? They're killing Muslims. Another, another religious, a, a, a religious people. People that we should be most, all, all people we should be, but most tolerant about. And yet they're so righteous about their self-identification as a Buddhist that they can't stand anybody else's identity with something different. That's true about every religious war that's ever fought, which, by the way, is most wars, or at least it's the excuse given. <clears throat> these four elements comprise a human being as impermanent. All these elements that we use to describe ourselves are all impermanent. Excuse me. Be mindful of the impermanence of the body to develop this passion. That's the only reason. This is mine. Why should I be passionate about it? Everybody's got one. And it's nothing, it's no more special than anyone else's. If left unattended, a corpse decays quickly. So again, I spent my whole life, in my case almost 67 years, trying to establish this thing, this thing making that the most important thing in my life that people know who and what I am and that as many people as possible know it. And in some cases, I don't care if I have to kill a lot of people to make sure everybody knows who I am. Why? Because when I'm done with it, it just rots like everyone else's. In fact, folks, that this body that we're so enamored with, it begins rotting the minute we're born. Or aging is another way to put it, more pleasant way. But it does. Life is a death sentence. So what are we going to do with it? Are we going to spend it in, in an acquisition of things? Whether it's money, power, the biggest house, or the acquisition of ideas. Or an accumulation of ideas that I associate with something that is external, or scattering myself externally in an idea, that is just a fabrication. It can never become me. I should stop doing that on screen. Can you see? I'm holding, I'm holding my life up as a hand. We can never become what we think we have to become. Never. We can't. Even if the idea that we're holding about us is reflected in the reality of our life, we're still living in the reality. There's still tension there. Until I bring that idea into my life, look at what I really want that idea to be, and then manifest that idea now framed by something an awakened human being will tell me will give me a wonderful, calm, and peaceful life now rooted in understanding. If I just do these, this, if I just develop an understanding of these four noble truths, resting in these four foundations of mindfulness, this is all I have to do. This is all we have to do. It's not really a lot, but it takes effort. It takes practice. It takes all the things that we're doing to do something that is very, very simple. It is kind of like putting a picture puzzle together that's a, a pretty advanced one and you finally get to that last piece and you put it in. That's simple, isn't it? Because it's so obvious. That's what Ram experienced on retreat mm -hmm. to a great extent. It was He put a lot of pieces together in that puzzle and then because of that, he put the last piece in and he, was, he recognized it. He, he was doing it and no one else could do it but Ram.
right? And we, and we all have done that. We all are doing it. We're all putting the pieces of our puzzle together. And it's that last piece that is so simple. But that last piece that seems so simple, is the other pieces are as simple. We simply don't recognize it. Because it, it's just not as... It's often not as powerful as that. But again, there are things that we can recognize, such as the, the four levels of jhana, such as recognizing that we're doing this right. How do we do that? Because it's bearing fruit immediate fruit or nearly be mindful that this very body too will die and pass away that is the nature of the world this world and all of the worlds and it's an unavoidable fate again why is the buddha teaching something that could seem so you know at least melancholy but almost defeatist isn't it you know you're all you're just you're all going to die but he's not saying it like that isn't he he gives us the only reason to live or at least the most important to, reason to live to be well concentrated and mindful of what's occurring. In this way, one remains mindful of the arising and the passing away of the body. Be mindful of it. It's going to happen. And independent of it, not clinging to anything in the world. It's going to happen to everything. Why cling to anything now that I understand it? Even things like my house, my car, my dog, my family. How do we do that? How do we stop clinging to children? Um... Because we don't own them. Because all that we can do is take joy in that simple pleasure. <laughs> I should ask Nina to talk about this in an anticipatory way, and you could talk of our children. It's only when we want our children to be different that they stop being that that we lose the ability to in the, some lose the ability to really appreciate their children. In my case, I really pushed my parents' appreciation to the hill. And you know what? <laughs> really, they never, ever did. And that's the thing that sustained me in the worst of times. Because even if I didn't realize it, again, it's, it brings me to tears just knowing it. Because when I was, when I was, when I was so full of self-loathing that the next thought might have been, and I never did, but it, it, I was close to at least going there. It was knowing that someone in the world, my parents, loved me. And they respected me. And again, I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but that gave me the strength to keep going. It, it put enough self-worth in me because of the real love that they, they instilled in me that I could keep going. And you know, I tend to think that that's what keeps us all going through all this awful thing. It's the underlying love we know that's present from our parents to us that we hold it. And if it wasn't that way, if that wasn't the exchange that all parents give their children, unless they're psychopath, psychopathological, and that's very rare, it happens. And this is the continuation of life from one generation to the next. It's the, it's the natural human love that they have for their children. But we don't own them just because we love them. And that's where we get into trouble, isn't it? When we go too far, when we don't you know, all the great parenting books talk about getting to the point where you have to stop holding on. You know, but I, I read a few just so I knew what it was like, even though I never had kids. Um, figuring that was, a, that was the only way I was going to understand. So we don't own anything in the world, and that's the greatest liberation. It's only the, it's the, the things closest to us and most familiar family that we have the most difficult time with that we sometimes might refer to that as the chaos of family, 
but we recognize it as such. And we allow that, that the chaos of family to be there, if that's the case, because we understand it now. And we can be more appreciative of it. In fact, I would say even more loving and kind of a, an understanding and maybe a slightly... Um, what's the right word? can't think of the word what's the word um i i was thinking the word i'm thinking of goes along with you you might be smirking at it but not in a disrespectful way in a knowing way you know i've been there i know what you're going through and 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 there's a chuckle in that but it's a chuckle of of familiarity and knowing not condemnation or, or belittling and how one this is how one remains mindful of the breath and the body just like that but it all comes down to being mindful of the breath and the body in and of itself not clinging to anything in the world. Mindfulness of feelings. And how does one remain mindful of feelings in and of, in and of themselves? When feeling pain, be mindful of there is pain. Again, the Buddha's not saying, do this practice and you'll never, ever have pain again. But you'll stop taking it personally. There's pain. In this moment, this pain, I got a, I got a mild pain in my hip. It's a good reference point. It's not like it is sometimes. It's almost debilitating. It's pain. It's there. When feeling pleasure, be mindful that there is pleasure. Right now, in my right leg, there's no pain. It feels pretty good. I'm mindful of it. Right now, I'm in Dhamma class. My mind is calm. It's at peace. When feeling neither pleasure nor pain, ambivalence, the biggest problem we have, be mindful that there is neither pleasure nor pain. What do we call that? Boredom. And we can't stand it. That's why a few of the most richest zillionaires in the world figured that's one thing out and exploited it. Not because they're evil, because we wanted to be exploited. We wanted the next level of distraction. Radio wasn't enough. Victrola's <laughs> records weren't enough. TV wasn't enough. You know, three stations wasn't enough. I don't know if anybody remembers. You remember three stations. One, yeah, that was it, yeah. When I, when we first, well, actually, my dad put it off for a while. But again, I can go through all the great things that we've developed, and all of those things, books, you know, we wouldn't have any understanding of history. We we wouldn't be growing as a in a in a relative way as a society if it wasn't for the written word. If it wasn't for King Ashoka's edicts written on rock in India, still there we likely wouldn't have the Buddhist Dhamma, or at least as nuanced as it is today. And if it wasn't for Facebook and Twitter, etc., we wouldn't be as distracted as we are today either. Again, these are the things. We are. We have an, a, an unquenchable thirst for distraction. Look at it. We are interrupting it. I just interrupted what might be another moment rooted in distraction using my breath. It's the common problem and it will continue to manifest. I forgot what I was doing. That ambivalence is the biggest difficulty in jhana meditation, by the way, and again, why it's taught here. Most of us give up meditation practice because it's just too damn boring and we're not doing it right. That's why I tell everyone, start with short periods of meditation and if you're reinvigorating a practice, do the same thing. Five minutes twice a day is plenty to start or begin a practice. When feeling pleasure in the mind, 
and a pleasure in the body, be mindful that there is pleasure in the body. When feeling pleasure not in the body and excitement in the mind, be mindful that there is pleasure in there is pleasure not in the body. It's in my mind. And the the Buddha goes through the same things and the, and the other two characteristics. In this way, one remains mindful internally and externally with regards to feelings. This is how one remains mindful of feelings in and of themselves. Excuse me. Mindfulness of thoughts. And how does one remain mindful of thoughts in and of themselves? Just a thought or a thought construct, an idea of fabrication. When thoughts are passionate, be mindful that thoughts are passionate. I'm having a passionate thought. I started this talk with just talking about our thoughts are nothing to take personally. They're just a thought that is hopefully accurately reflecting what's occurring. It's, it's helping to describe me now using my my mind and body, my brain and body as it's meant to. Using feeling to now inform my thoughts, creating an understanding of this moment. When thoughts are dispassionate, be mindful that thoughts are dispassionate. There's no reacting arising. When there are thoughts of aversion, be mindful that there are thoughts of aversion. And a lot of those thoughts of aversion, and it's one of the reasons why I mentioned uh, current affairs, by the way, which I won't get into right now, don't be afraid. But I'll be reacting. It's because we think that, and we usually develop rather intricate systems in the world that we become a part of that justifies our aversion. And so we create a segment of society that is against another segment of society that we can join and they have very radical ideas, but they're no longer radical and I'm no longer averse to it or I justify it because it's who everybody agrees with. I can couch it now and I'm just being compassionate, but often... Often that compassion, lacking wisdom, even within Dharma practitioners, by the way, is, sa- is salvation. You have to change because I'm saving you or I'm saving somebody else or a group of people. And no matter how much agitation that might bring into your life, which is manifesting as true aversion to other people in this world, it's just that. Now, you can have a point of view that is a common point of view among people that, that creates a lot of excitement or maybe even hatred, justifiable hatred towards another group of people without falling into that trap. You can simply recognize in, in how I understand the Dhamma, this view is probably, in my opinion, more aligned with the Dhamma. Do I need you to change because that's the way I think? No, I just need to practice the Dhamma. And when the opportunity arises, either in a general conversation or when it's time to vote, then I vote. But other than that, I don't have to keep myself agitated or try to destroy a country because half the country is not listening to me. Which, by the way, it's not just one side that's doing that today. And again, I'm not trying to get people excited, but it's such a good example. Is, would everybody agree that it's a good example at least? Yes? Yes? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it is. And even, even in Dhamma class, especially in Dhamma class, we shouldn't get excited, especially when your teacher is teaching you that. Even that's a version. Even the things, even our sacred cows are things that we should recognize if we're averse to other people not adopting that view. 
because ultimately it's a view that is understandable in the first noble truth. There is dukkha. And there's going to be dukkha manifesting in all kinds of ways in the world, such as poverty, racism, misogyny, xenophobia, etc., etc., homophobia. That's rooted in ignorance. And if we can see it that way, rather than hardening our ideas, saying, I'm a Buddhist, but you're, you're wrong because you're homophobic and you should die, where am I going? But if I say, hmm, that person seems to be, have, have difficulties with people of a certain quality. I notice it. I also understand that that person would be much more mindful and peaceful in their own minds if they understood it. That's it. But then as the person said, and this happens to me occasionally, you know, I'm, I'm this way. I find myself, I hate women. Why don't we talk about it? I find myself, I don't like women. I like to have sex with men. What should I do about it? I, people, people hate me because of it. And again, people have asked. It, 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 it happened recently. It happened within the last two weeks. A person had, that uh, living as a, gay, as a gay man, now concerned because of the rhetoric that somebody's going to hit him in the head with a rock because of that. And, I, and we talked about it, and we were able to bring him back into the Dhamma to recognize, even though the rhetoric is high, there's no more additional hatred. In other words, you live so far pretty good, and he had, he had to admit. It's all in his head that he's creating this tension. I'm not saying that it's, it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that you can, even in this case, he created a scenario that he was distracted from what was occurring in this moment, because each and every moment, he was concerned that someone was going to Recognize that he was gay and kill him for it, literally. And of course, it it it, it doesn't happen. Uh, I, I'm, I'm using that again as an example. And and again, just as an example, if we did this, we wouldn't need to need for to fall into salvation, would we? But salvation doesn't work. Why? Because we're mindless. If we're trying to save anybody, including ourselves, we've lost our mind. Why? Because it can't be done. At least as far as we know, it can't be done. We've been trying for as long as we've been on this planet. And right now, things seem as bad as they can be in this country. But the same situations have been occurring and reoccurring over and over and over again. Why? Because we've never addressed the key issues. All these things that we think we should be against and are against are good things as long as we're not against them. Just recognize that as society we are developing in a way that we're putting aside a lot of these things. In my lifetime, we have so diminished racism, all these things that we, that we, are, that we used to be much more guilty of have greatly diminished, and we should recognize it. And Maybe then we could continue in this direction without pause. Now we are in a, in a, in a, in a, a time of great pause. Nothing is getting done because we're screaming at each other all the time. And again, just as an argument between me and you will never accomplish anything, an argument between two sides or 10 sides, or in our case, it might be 340, whatever, 340 million sides. You don't get anywhere. We get along as, as a Sangha. Our retreats are remarkable, and everybody says that. This particular retreat, nobody, Nobody wanted to let go of each other. I had to kind of raise my voice a little bit and determination to say, it's time to go, folks. We have to leave the property. Because we didn't want to. 
Again, everybody was just glommed on. I used that word. Everybody was just glommed on to each other. You all know what it means. Because, and we came together through the Dhamma. And when the world comes together through the Dhamma, there will be peace on the world. It's not likely to happen. In fact, our teacher taught us, said it. It's not going to happen. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be dukkha. Stop trying to save it and get on with your life. Stop trying to save each other, especially through hatred. Another word for aversion, isn't it? Another word for aversion. I don't like the way you act. It's, it's for your benefit that you change. When thoughts are deluded, be mindful that my thoughts are deluded. How do we do it? Through the framework of the Eightfold Path. When thoughts are free of delusion, be mindful that my thoughts are free of delusion. How does one know delusion? Thoughts and actions that... Oh, this is my words. How do we know delusion? Thoughts and actions that contradict the Eightfold Path are deluded. Every one of them. And again, it doesn't mean, using Jen as an example, that when she goes to yoga class or teaches a yoga class that she's deluded... In fact, I would bet you're a much better yoga teacher now than you've ever been. Well, and your no, practice is a teacher, but yeah, okay. my practice. And your practice has yeah. greatly enhanced. Right, right. I would say mostly because of your practice itself, your yoga yeah. practice and then with your Dhamma practice. But Jen is not deluded. She gave a great talk on the website about keeping those separate. And again, that Buddha didn't say, develop the Eightfold Path and don't do anything else in your life. That would be just as hurtful as all the other teachings. He said, develop the Dhamma so you can actually live your life. So go out and live it. And do everything that you can possibly experience, that you want to, that is not rooted in eye-making. And it'll probably be not a lot of stuff at that point. When the mind is constricted, be mindful that the mind is constricted. The Buddha referred to the world before he awakened as that, con- that confining place and he also referred to the palace grounds where he grew up as a confining place. When thoughts are scattered, be mindful that thoughts are scattered. When the mind is spacious, be mindful that this mind is spacious. But don't have aversion to the scattered thoughts and grasp after spaciousness. They're all your thoughts. Own your thoughts in a dispassionate way and then you can control it. As you want to, not as intended. In other words, each and every thought will be the thought you want to have not because you're controlling that thought, but because you laid these four foundations for all of your thinking. And then your awakened mind simply just flows and is appropriate for what's occurring. And I think a good way to describe that quality of mind would be we become a reference point to what's occurring. Isn't that cute? (laughs) When thoughts are common, be mindful that thoughts are common, as an example. Aren't I cute? When thoughts are unsurpassed, be mindful that thoughts are unsurpassed. As an example, aren't I cute? When the mind is not concentrated, be mindful that the mind is not concentrated. As an example, aren't I cute? When the mind is concentrated, be mindful that the mind is concentrated. As an example, when the mind is not released, be mindful that the mind is not released. Including, aren't I really cute? When the mind is released, be mindful that the mind is released. Like, I know I'm cute. I don't care if you know In this moment, I don't need to be cute because I can't be. I can be something even better than cute. Even better than handsome. What is it? What is it, Laura? Mindful. Yeah. I could be fully mindful. I could be resting and refined mindfulness in this moment. 
And that is pure. Refined mindfulness framed by the Eightfold Path is pure. I can be just as cute as a Dickens, as my mama used to call me. <laughs> and it won't do me any good. Why? Because if I'm using it, I'm just eluding you. If I need and using my incredible cuteness or, my, or any physical quality that I might ex- exploit, and you know, people do that all the time in different ways. That's exactly what I'm doing, all right. I'm leading you with the fabrication of who I am rather than just be who I am, which is a great gift to you if you'll accept it. And it's nothing if you won't. And that's okay, that's my point. I mean, that, 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 that's for me. It's me to offer the gift of, of me in this moment. It's up to you whether you take it. But if I want to be that type of person, if I really want to live with great generosity of spirit, that's the way I'll live my life. I'll live my life from that measure of openness, but a saying that I really like, we'll live with an open mind, but not so open that our brains will fall out. We'll be well focused by the Eightfold Path. And so we know we're good to go. In this moment, there's nothing, nothing left within me to provoke another moment of ignorance, so I can do no harm for myself, or my, for myself, to myself, or others. That is true liberation. And that is the only liberation we can ever develop. It's knowing I'm good to go. In this way, one remains mindful internally and externally with regards to thoughts and feelings. This is the fourth foundation of mindfulness, and we're going to end with this. And how does one remain mindful of the present quality of mind in and of itself? Be at peace with your mind, it's your mind. One remains focused on the mind internally and externally on the mind itself. Internally and externally. If I'm throwing my mind out there, I'm aware of it. I take a breath, I bring it in here. Is my mind resting internally in this body? One remains focused on the mind internally and externally on the mind itself. One remains focused. Excuse me. One remains focused on the origination of of the mind and the arising and the passing of passing away of the mind, with regards to the mind itself. This is a tough question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Well, I'll read the I'll read this again. One remains focused on the mind. This is all we do on the origination of mind and the arising and the passing away of the mind. What is the Buddha referring to? Where did this mind that, I, that is arising and passing away within me or, originate? Adam? Uh, thoughts and feelings. Real, real close. You're almost there. In fact, that really is a right, it's, it's a right answer, but not exactly the, the verbiage that I to. wanted. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. Adam's right. I'll stop trying to be the cutest person in the world. My mind, this mind, originated now. Now it's gone. In fact, it was gone quicker than that. But each mind, as as us, as our life, as the world, as the universe, as everything, originates in this breath. You might say. That, that's the same mind you had a moment ago, but it's not, is it? In fact, it often is significantly different based by what knowledge I'm gaining in relation to the Eightfold Path. Again, Ram experienced that in a very palpable way on retreat, but we all did. We all, whoever was on retreat, five, the five of us that were on retreat, 
would you and, and online, would you say you left with a, a different person? Yeah. Because you were. You had a different mind and also you had a different body. Internally it changed a little bit just so it could maintain life. That that is the origination of mind that we're with that we, we are concerned about. And what does that mean? Because the Buddha teaches us that a fully awakened, fully mature human being gives birth to another moment rooted in awakening, not in ignorance. Another way of saying that is we originate our mind, the next mind, based on what we're holding in this mind. And if this mind has originated in ignorance, an ignorant thought, a fabricated thought, then I am giving rise to, within myself, another moment rooted in ignorance. But if this mind is awakened, that mind is only capable of originating another mind as itself. That's karma. That's the mirror principle, by the way. People talk about what you hold in. What you'll often feel what you're holding in mind. Well, this is, what, this is that teaching. We will experience it in this way because it's what we're holding in mind. If what I'm holding in mind is free of me and it's just a reference point, I'm doing what the Buddha teaches us. David? Aren't you just describing the insight of the three minds? Thanks, Will. Hold on one second so you can. Aren't you just describing the insight of the three marks, which is the whole point? Yep. Again, simple. We're, we're the, what we're trying to gain an understanding of is greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Mentioned here. Okay, let me, let me try to finish this. One knows there is a mind, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. They remain independent of, they, the mind, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world, including my yoga practice, even though it's important to me, I don't cling it to my Dhamma practice or my doctor's appointment, or anything else. It's all, it's all part of Dhamma practice at that point. In other words, Jen brings the Dhamma mind into her yoga practice and practices yoga. She doesn't bring her, her Dhamma mind into yoga and sit there and meditate and teach the Four Noble Truths. That would be wrong speech, wouldn't it? Of course it would. It's completely inappropriate. It's the wrong setting. And there was no invitation to do so. They remain independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. This is how one remains mindful of thoughts in and of, it, of themselves. That's the end of, the end of part one. Um, the other sections, by the way, in case you're wondering, are much, much shorter. And I thought of splitting this, but I just wanted to teach the four foundations one after mm-hmm. another. And so mm-hmm. I think we did, but it's quarter after, uh, five after ten. Um, if anybody has to leave, you know, go ahead. Please feel free to do so. Adam, would you like to share anything before you leave? Um, just one thing real quick. Uh, you said a couple of times um, how you know, thoughts and feelings are nothing more than a reference point to what's really happening. And I found that to be really, really helpful yeah. in developing the idea or um, letting go of those things and, and uh, um, really realizing there <clears throat> that they, how quickly they, they, they come and go. Just yeah. A, that, a useful that, tool to think of it that yeah. way. That is, it's a useful tool. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, they're, they're not us, except we, that it's feelings and thoughts that we use to, to make us up and establish that foundation of mindfulness that is just rooted in ignorance. So again, it's the same mind. And we're just, we're just, we're, 
we're turning it around as the Buddha described it in the Gara Sutta, but we're also just sticking in the last piece of the puzzle eventually. You know, and again, just like you described it. Thank, Thank you so right. much. Good to see all of you. Yeah. We'll see you again soon. Okay. Is there anybody online that has to go, has, has to sign off? Okay. And I'll ask you all just to keep your comments relatively brief. And speak loudly because Nina just left the room for a moment. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Mary, how are you? Good morning. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, good. Um, so, uh, some insight um, developed for me um, that sometimes you can, you know, notice your uh, deluded thoughts or behaviors um, in retrospect. Hi, hi everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in retrospect, so like as I reflect on my past week of um, um, just it was a high emotion week for a lot of people on my team and things like that, um, it's now clear to reflect back on um, um, where I, you know, was practicing the Dhamma and where, you know, I could do better next time. But generally speaking, all in all, um, it was uh, fairly mature uh, behavior. But I just wanted to share that sometimes it's recency to the event, but after the event that you, you know, see and realize some of that um, deluded thinking or behavior because maybe you've reacted at the point of contact or you're sharing in the emotion that someone's sharing right in front of you. Um, but anyway, the other thing I thought of, John, you often mention about um, social media and the role that that plays in our distracted lives. Just real quick, it made me think of when I was um, a young teen and I asked my mother to buy the first issue of People Magazine. Huh. And um, and I also wanted a subscription to Seventeen Magazine. And so my mother was like, I mean, that would have been a bit of a luxury for one person in our large family to get a magazine just for yourself. I mean, I would have had to, you know, rush to the mailbox to get it each time. But anyway, one of the things she said about it, she said, you know, you can have it because you're, you know, a mature young lady, she said. But, well, and I was paying for it myself, but I still had to ask permission. Sure. And um, But she said, just know that those kinds of magazines create a lot of wanting. And I never really forgot that, obviously. Yeah. I'm going to bring it today. Yeah. But that's that feeling of wanting something that's in a magazine or wanting yeah. something to be different in it as it is or, or you know, people call it, you know, FOMO, you know, wow, look at those people in this magazine. I'm not living that life. They are, you know. Mm. So I think that marketing and advertising has always been about capitalizing on these, you know, feelings and emotions that we all have. And the same is true now, whether it's social media or before, that is up to each of us to bring the maturity and the wisdom of, you know, this practice to understanding what is enjoyable to look at, um, maybe a little educational, maybe there's some value in it, but not to be distracted by all the other components of it. So yeah. I think that's, you know, definitely true with social media today too. Yeah. So thank you, John. Good class. Thank you, Mary. Great teaching. Uh, Deb, how are you? Hey, good morning, everyone. Doing well. Keep been at it. 10 minutes for today. Good, good for you. 
Are you gaining any insight into uh, greed, aversion, or deluded thinking? Yes. Ah, good yes, for you. Yes, I am. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll probably talk later in the week. Take care, Deb. Ed. Brian, how are Ed. you? Hi, John. I'm good. How are you? Good. 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 Um. I found it interesting today as you were going through this that it, it felt like there's a uh, a circuit running between the body and the mind and, and everything that happens in between and how each of the, the foundations support and, and almost define each other one after the other. And just like the, the rest of the Dhamma where it's, it's multifaceted and it, it just all fits together. It's the same thing with the, uh, the foundations, which was... It was interesting this morning, so thank you. Somebody be a dominant. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. John just stepped out for a minute. Um, Kevin. Morning, everybody. Morning. Yeah. Um, thank John for me for this great teaching. <laughs> comes back. Um, it really is fundamental, and it really, you know, it just speaks to deepening concentration, and this is the method of deepening concentration through jhana meditation to bring mindfulness to the four. And this, these are the four foundations. It's just, you know, it's just perfect and just, you know, essential. So thanks everybody. Thanks Kevin. I'm going to go to Ram. Ram. Um, Yeah, it's it's amazing how detailed and and comprehensive this sutta is. Mm. It just touches on everything, mm. and it is, you know, the, as you said in the beginning, the the right method of practice. Mm. And it is just that and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, it's, we spent uh, like a whole. Uh, a retreat on 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 Satipatthana, uh, yeah, and, and rightly yeah. so. Uh, yeah, it's the basis of every of of the whole practice. Uh, great stuff. Mm. Laura, I'm good. Thank you. You good? Yeah. <laughs> Happy to be here. <clears throat> uh, uh, I guess I'll go next. <laughs> um, so this sutta is. Uh, I mean, the four foundations of mindfulness is like the ABCs and the one, two, threes of the, um, of Dhamma practice. Mm -hmm. So when we are practicing on the cushion, what is happening is our breath is arising and passing away. So that's the one thing that we can focus on. Um, that is going to be there since we are meditating and we're alive. So um, thoughts, feelings, and overall state of mind will also be there because we're a human being and we have feelings and thoughts and, and overall states of mind. So as we're keeping our focus on our breath, we can also watch the thoughts, the feelings, and the overall state of mind. And that's a lot. That's a lot to do. Um, But we are 
fully capable of doing it. Anybody who's, you know, returned an email with a classroom of 20 teenagers and know exactly which ones are on task and which ones aren't is aware of the fact that we're capable of, of being aware of multiple things. Maybe not um, doing it well, but you're aware of it. So we can be aware of our breath and be aware of what else is coming up while we're aware of our breath. And that's um, also something we can practice off the cushion. And in the rest of this, this sutta is essentially a, the rest of the Dhamma, be, being aware of the rest of the Dhamma so that we're more likely to stay focused on our breath, our feelings, and our thoughts, and our overall state of mind. So... Cliff's notes. Go on, on the Satsapatana Sutta. I'm just taking over. Did we get that one on? We did. I'm good, folks. Thank you. And then we just got to go with Nina. Hi. Um, I had a lot of thoughts during this. Sounds great. You're, yeah. Now it's you. But um, nothing that really stuck to the end. So I'll take noble silence. But I do have to say that the retreat gave me... I don't know if it changed me or made me a different person, but it it made me aware of the range of mindfulness I could yeah. attain over yeah. time yeah. when you're taken out of the distractions of life. So I gained a lot yeah. from being in those four and a half consecutive days mm-hmm. of quiet, especially when I returned. Yeah. It all kind of came rushing back. Yeah. But then you could slowly, like, weed it out again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you get back into the world. That's why yeah. we go on retreats and do them that way. So you just have four and a half days just living the boundary. <laughs> and I feel like that was a good lesson, too, like feeling the juxtaposition between the retreats oh, yeah. and life. Yeah, recognizing that is so important. Yeah. 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 There's no substitute for retreats. That's why we hold them. It's not just a way to get it. It's not a, it's not a vacation. Yeah. It is pretty resting, though, at times, isn't it? It was, yeah. I know. Yeah. Like, several times, which I never do. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it was. Aww. I'm so glad you were there. Thank you. It's more Dustin, we got to get you out there. Oh, I'm sorry, Ron. Yeah, it's just more relaxing than any regular vacation. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It is. You know, it was. Yeah, I'm always stuck. I always come home exhausted from vacations. vacations mm. You yeah. don't want that. Yeah. This was just so smooth. Yeah. Everything was just wonderful, so... Dustin, good to see you. Nice seeing you. Um, I did have like a revelation yesterday, I think, but it comes from the mindfulness and meditation that, like Mary was saying, you know, like to think back about something and have sort of a understanding about it. Um, I have these stress dreams all the time, and I tell Nina, like, I don't understand. I don't feel stressed during the day, but I have dreams of like running and losing my phone and losing my kid and yeah. it's so stressful mm-hmm. and I was like well you know what what could what could I what could it be what could I be stressed about that I don't know and how subtle stress is and then yesterday we were driving we we're just talking about because we just lived together for you know a short while now and I said how is it living with me you know and she said well it's pretty easy because you're invisible <laughs> and I thought that's a lot of stress to be invisible all the time 
And that's how I had to be as a kid. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. even realize that I carry that stress around. Yep, you don't. Or you just talked about it. I would never realize that if I wasn't sitting and contemplating and yep. meditation. Yep. And now you look at it and you, were, you realize you were just a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And now I don't need to be like that. I don't need to be on guard and make sure I'm not getting in trouble. Yeah. Oh, you just wait. I just open the gate. You just wait. Dirty clothes everywhere. Dishes. Farting. Just wait. That's all. No. Did you just say farting? Yeah. I, 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 I think that's the first time it was mentioned in this room. And I'm glad for it. No um, property. Have you, Nina? Uh, have you have you learned to accept a rather windy house or not? <laughs> Again, Dustin, what you're describing is dollar practice. It's just it's yeah. it's keeping up and re- and the, just as important is recognizing that and the continuation of healing that comes through yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just feel better, but you're not using it to eye make. You're just recognizing, yeah, this stuff works. I'm just a reference. Really, we're just a reference point to it occurring, but an involved reference point, aren't we? When it's not eye making, it's just it's just this. And I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel bad that yeah. I make myself invisible. I'm not going to beat myself up and say I'm wrong. It's yeah. just I'm aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I was, I, my father, my, my, both my parents modeled that because they both came from abusive alcoholic, grand, alcoholic parents. And there were times I said my father wasn't perfect. The, <clears throat> it manifested in him as, a, in ex, as extreme people pleasing. He just couldn't avoid even a, even a reasonable discussion with someone that, that didn't agree with him, and it hurt him in business. And I won't go into details. And again, that's okay. Dad took care of us well. You know, we never were wanting anything. Um, but I saw it in him, and he could have. There were things that he wanted in life that he would have achieved if it wasn't for that. That people pleasing. I don't want any confrontation. Mm-hmm. You know. So. But you're learning. We learn that we don't accept that, but we're not afraid of confrontation either. When it's appropriate, we'll speak with the right speech. And when it's not, or when, it, when that speech would fall on deaf ears, we simply walk away. Yeah. And, and you walked away from an incident that, that might have landed somebody in the therapist. And not, if that's where you go, that's fine. But for many years, trying to unravel that, yeah. when it was just a recognition, yeah, I had, a, I, I had an incident, or many, when I was a child. Okay, past it. You know? I'm not that anymore. This is the quality of mind I have. Mm. You know? And I can condition it any way I want. And you did. So good for you. Thank you. Did we get did we get to everyone? Oh wow. I was in there a long time. I had to call my broker. <laughs> so we, we got a good start on the uh Satipatthana Sutta and a, a great addition to our jhana structured study. Uh, it turns out that uh Jenna's gonna lead the next two Tuesdays and I'll be teaching on Saturday, which means in a five course series you'll be getting the two best teachers we have to offer. <laughs> Rude. Rude. What? <laughs> Ron just got up, put on his hat, and left. <laughs> Everybody's still here. And David, David's throwing things at me. My God. I thought he was a gentle one, too. <laughs> That's what I get for being cute. <laughs> I just wanted to mention that uh, in reference to the previous remarks uh, that 
somebody once said that the, the sign of a, a maturing relationship is that you can fart in bed. <laughs> <laughs> really? I really thought that was going to be that never, that, never, that never happened in mine. And I've tried it. I really thought that was going to be really Poor profound. Poor Joanne never got used to it. <laughs> what did you say, David? I really thought that was going to be really profound. Well, I would, I would say it's a mark, it's a mark of a good profound. relationship anyway. Isn't it? <laughs> We're not there yet. This is what you, when, when you're. When your partner does that in bed and actually raises the sheets a little bit, that is when you practice in Dhamma. That is not me. That is not mine. That is not what I am. That's yours. All right. What did you say? That is yours. That is is strictly you. This is why you got to come to class in person. All of you. Start coming out. I... Does anybody have one, just to, as an example of what we're talking about? All right, we're going to finish. We're going to try to finish with Meta, as we always do. One of the Dudley Moore said in ten, I think it was, it might have been Arthur. That Arthur isn't fun the best thing to have, and when you can have it within the Dhamma class and on retreat, it really is, isn't it? And it has to be this light because we're dealing with something that is most significant and most important. Take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body and start generating great calm. These are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, Those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. See you all. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. See you, Deb. See you, Mary. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.